energy so stalling, yeah. Everybody's running scared. We used to be so carefree, we used to be so happy, used to have everything we need. Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens, beautiful people everywhere? It's your girl, C.K. McGee, and I am your host. Hey there, beautiful people. How's everyone doing? I pray as always that you're all doing as well as you can be. Welcome back for another episode of Village Mentality. I am so glad to have you all here with me in the village and you're welcome to join me each and every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'd also like to give a warm welcome to those of you who may be tuning in for the very first time. And if you're looking to see what Village Mentality is all about, then I invite you to catch up on all previous episodes. You can find them on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and The Awakened Lounge. I also provide links to each episode on both Instagram and Facebook, and I'll share those links with you at the end of the show. But thanks again to all of you for joining me. As a mental health advocate with lived experience, each week I'll be talking about different topics that could impact our mental health particularly within BIPOC communities, which by virtue of the fact that I'm an African-American woman, it only stands to reason that I would be concerned about communities of color and their mental health. Now, it really does not matter who you are or where you're from because we all can be impacted. The purpose of this podcast is to bring awareness to the many different ways in which our mental health can be affected, showing that Poor mental health outcomes are not always attributed to chemical imbalance, but from the various stressors or traumas or circumstances that we all face from time to time in our lives. Through education and advocacy by individuals like myself who have lived experience, the hope is that we'll be able to show up in more effective ways to support those around us that may be suffering. The stigma of mental illness and conversations about our mental health can be more difficult for marginalized and intersectional groups, and it interferes with our ability to take care of our mental health as we should. Now, Village, I cannot stress enough how essential self-care practices are for our mental health and for our overall well-being. And there have been people that I have spoken to who have pushed back on this idea because they do not understand that self-care is more than just a hashtag. You heard me? It is a necessity in order to maintain our health and our ability to take care of ourselves and each other, okay? Now, incorporating some time for us to take care of ourselves, you know, preferably you'll take some time to do this 
each day, but it's really up to you as to when you're able to fit it in. What's important is that you make the time for yourself because doing this will help to rejuvenate our spirits and souls so that we can continue to be the fantabulous kings and queens that we most definitely are. And I'll be here, right here, to remind each of us of that very fact every single week. And if you have heard this show before, then you know that there's plenty of music too. And you never know what I'll play, but plenty of music from my musical jukebox. So I hope that you'll sit back and relax and enjoy the music as well as, you know, be informed by the information that I'm sharing with you. Okay. Now, without further ado, I believe that it's time for me to take my first walk of the evening to my musical jukebox. Our first song tonight, Village, is from his 1980 debut album, and it was released as the first single. It became his biggest hit, peaking at number six on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and number five on the adult contemporary chart. In 2009, VH1 ranked the song at number 64 on their retrospective list of the 100 greatest one-hit wonders of the 80s which of course is one of my favorite decades of music. Now, it has been said that this song was a ripoff of the Michael McDonald, Kenny Loggins composition, What a Fool Believes. Hmm. Well, Village, let's see what you think. Here's Robbie Dupree with Steal Away.
Give Me the Night, a song recorded by American jazz and R&B musician, George Benson. 
which he released from his 1980 studio album of the same title. It was written and composed by Heat Waves keyboard player Rod Temperton and produced by Quincy Jones. Now, Patty Austin, she provides the backing and the scat vocals that are heard throughout the song. This song was a commercial success and was Benson's first single to hit number one on the U.S. Billboard Soul Single Chart. It also peaked at number four on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, making this song his most successful pop entry. Well, Village, you know me. I'd like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, you know, whether it be about current events, entertainment, or something that's just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called Let's Talk About It. Okay, kings and queens, so let's talk about PTSD and racial trauma. All month long, we've been talking about different aspects of PTSD in observance of uh, PTSD Awareness Month. And um, I thought that it would be important to to talk about racial trauma um, because most people may not be aware of the impact of it, right? So racial trauma is the ongoing result of racism, racist bias, and exposure to racist abuse in the media. Racial trauma can affect many aspects of a person's life, including their ability to have relationships, concentrate on school or work, and to feel safe. Racial trauma is widespread among marginalized groups. And this is particularly true among Black people in the United States, the majority of whom say that they have experienced racism. Now, media depictions of racism, such as police violence against unarmed Black people, may also trigger feelings of racial trauma. So what exactly is racial trauma? Um, well, you know, when you look at it this way, discrimination, it's a traumatic experience that can cause similar symptoms to PTSD, as well as depression and anxiety. So exposure to discrimination, either directly or indirectly, can trigger racial trauma. Indirectly can include witnessing discrimination against a member of a particular group. You know, like uh, as we're watching the news and we're seeing a lot of these instances with violence against um, Asian Americans, Okay, so something like that, when you're seeing that going on time and time again. Chronic exposure to discrimination it can be humiliating, frightening, and isolating. Okay, so who does it affect most? All right, well, racial discrimination is the primary risk factor, okay, for racial trauma. While many people report trauma stemming from racist abuse, people can also develop racial trauma even when they are not the target personally. Any marginalized or stigmatized racial or ethnic group may experience racial trauma. Here in the U.S., Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color, otherwise known as BIPOC, face racial trauma. And the intensity of racial trauma may vary from region to region or across a person's lifespan. 
As long as systemic racism persists, all BIPOC remain vulnerable to racial trauma. Okay, now there's a lot of research that suggests that experiences of discrimination increase the risk of trauma symptoms. And this means that people who report such experiences may be more likely to experience trauma. Reports of racial discrimination, they vary greatly. For example, there was a uh, research by Pew, P-E-W, and in that survey, they found that 81% of Black people with college experience say they've been subject to at least one instance of racial discrimination. And this compares to 69% who have a high school education or less. It also found that black males, our kings, are also more likely than our queens, our black females, to report unfair treatment by police. Now, some of the causes of, of racial trauma um, it could be any type of stress or anxiety around racial factors or treatment, which triggers the racial trauma. And some of these examples can include exposure to racial or ethnic stereotypes, right? An example of this is when academics or textbooks assert that some racial groups are better or worse at certain tasks, okay? There can also be fears around personal safety. And an example of this scenario is when a Latinx person fears the label of an undocumented immigrant or a person of color fears abuse by police. It could also happen with witnessing members of a person's group receiving abuse. And this can be in real life or it could be via, you know, the media, social media, the news, such as when a Latinx person sees immigrant children in cages or a black person sees a video of an unarmed black person being killed, okay? There's a case that's going on right now, and forgive me that I don't know the name of it, but, you know, it involves a, a police officer stopping a black man. Black man runs away from the police officer who gives chase, catches up with him, gets on top of him while he's on his stomach, and he shoots the man in the back of his head and claims that he was fearing for his life. As a Black person, when you're seeing videos like that over and over again, I could understand that you can feel some kind of trauma from that, that we can feel trauma from that. That is an example of racial trauma, okay? Racist abuse of loved ones. This can include attacks on partners, parents, or children. If you have direct exposure to racist abuse or discrimination, this may be hearing racist stereotypes at work or being the recipient of a racial slur, like the N-word, right? Others not taking experiences of racism seriously. Now, this may happen when people question if someone's experience was real. I'll tell you very quickly, I actually had a friendship end over that. Now, there were other factors uh, within the friendship, but this was basically the straw that broke the camel's back. As a Black woman who was friends with a non-person of color, um, we had been friends for a number of years. And so I had this experience, and I should say a couple of different experiences. And when I spoke to her about it, she didn't believe me. She didn't believe me. And one of the problems is that the people I spoke about were individuals that she herself had been familiar with. And so she just really couldn't wrap her brain around the fact that they were being discriminating to me. And so I really felt 
a very deep sense of hurt behind that. And subsequently, the friendship just pretty much ended. You know, we stopped talking to each other. So that can be a very real thing to deal with when people are not leaving you. People of color do not go around fabricating stories because they want attention. They're not doing it because, you know, they they think it's fun or interesting or, or colorful, no pun intended. But they want to be able to talk about their experiences authentically in a real way. And the pain that they experience as a result of them is not something that, um, you know, they enjoy feeling. There's no sense in fabricating that kind of pain is what I'm saying. So when a person of color who knows what discrimination is because they've experienced it is talking to you about it, the thing that you don't want to do is doubt them and question them as if what they're saying can't possibly be true. Because being a non-person of color, obviously, you do not have that experience. So therefore, how can you discount it? Okay. Now, the list of racial trauma, it's unlimited. Other examples may include historical trauma, microaggressions. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You know, can I touch your hair or you speak so well, you know, especially if you're a person of color, as if there's no expectation you'd be able to do that. I mean, I can speak some slang too, but there's a time and a place for everything, okay? Experiences of living with inequalities, such as access to school and medical or mental health treatments. Now, some of the symptoms of racial trauma can affect virtually every aspect of a person's well-being. Many people with racial trauma experience symptoms of PTSD, which is why I thought it was important to talk about it, you know, because most people may not realize that. And this is especially after a direct experience of discrimination or racial violence. Some of these symptoms include distress relating to the trauma. This may cause a person to think about and relive an event continually. Some people have flashbacks or nightmares, okay? Avoiding things that remind the person of the trauma. This can negatively affect a person's life in many ways. For example, a person who experiences racism at college may leave school, while a person who experiences racism in a police interaction may fear the police or run when they see them. And that's something that a lot of individuals don't understand. You might, the first reaction when you see a police interaction um, with a police officer and a person of color, you might be like, well, why are they running? Why are they running? Because they're afraid, they are scared. And there is a history to substantiate that fear, okay? Again, if you haven't experienced it, how can you discount it? There can be intense anxiety or depression relating to the trauma, and this can affect someone at any time or continuously. Feeling distracted by memories or thoughts of the trauma. Again, this experience, it may occur from time to time or pretty regularly, all right? Negative thoughts about yourself, other people, or the world. For example, a person might lose trust in other people or worry that all authority figures want to harm them. There could be an increased sensitivity and reactivity. A person may startle easily and become more hypervigilant to their surroundings. And this may increase exposure to further trauma, such as when a person is afraid of the police and behaves anxiously whenever they're around. In addition to symptoms of PTSD, racial trauma can have other symptoms and signs, which include disassociation. And this is a feeling of a person being numb 
or disconnected from themselves or others. In more extreme cases, they might have an outer body experience or not remember periods of disassociation at all. Weathering, which is an episode I did a while ago, love for you guys to go back and check that out. But this is the chronic health effect of exposure to racial discrimination and trauma. Marginalized populations typically have worse overall health and higher risk of cardiovascular disease and other ailments. And this may be because of the lifetime of racial trauma that they face, okay? Having to endure it day in and day out, depending on where you are in the country. Prolonged trauma and poor mental health, okay? Unlike some other traumas, racial discrimination continues to permeate much of everyday life. This means marginalized communities may face chronic trauma and aggression, making it difficult to recover from racist abuse, okay? Now, as far as the diagnosis is concerned, the American Psychological Association emphasizes that sometimes mental health practitioners and others do not, do not directly diagnose symptoms of racial trauma. And this lacking is because they may not understand the serious effects of discrimination. Once again, you know, when you're thinking about something like that, let's talk about cultural competence and cultural responsiveness, cultural humility. These are the practices in which they recognize issues such as racial trauma. But if you're dealing with a therapist or a mental health practitioner who is not practicing cultural competence, responsiveness, uh, humility, then they might be sitting across from you looking at you like you have five heads and that's not going to help. So that's what's important about taking the time to find, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be a person of color, but a person who's actually interested in equitable uh, mental health care treatment and recognizing that there are different experiences that people of color have that maybe they do not, right? But yet they're willing to understand and willing to give you a space to be able to work through those feelings, right? Now, some, they may not even know how to assess for race-related trauma symptoms. And again, that's why we talk about it on the show, bring awareness to that, to kind of give you an opportunity to, um, you know, be on the lookout, you know, when you are searching, if you are searching for a mental health practitioner, these might be some of the things that you can keep in mind while you're looking, right? Looking for somebody who recognizes racial trauma, understands that it has similar symptoms to PTSD, etc. right? Now, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is otherwise known as the DSM-5, it limits the traumatic events that qualify or a PTSD diagnosis to those that a person directly experiences or is exposed to. And this limitation includes learning that a traumatic event occurred to a close family member or a close friend, right? Vicarious trauma. In cases of actual and, and or threatened death, the event must have been violent or accidental. And similarly for a PTSD diagnosis, a person must experience repeated or extreme exposure to details of the traumatic event. These limitations of the DSM-5 may mean that doctors do not diagnose some people with PTSD 
that stems from racial trauma. So we have to talk about it. We have to bring awareness to it and educate people um, to open their minds so that we can start recognizing this as we're being treated, right? Now, there are some treatment and coping methods um, that, you know, as far as some of the aspects of racial trauma may respond well to traditional PTSD treatment. And some of those treatment options include having trauma-informed psychotherapy to help a person identify their emotions, process their experiences, and identify healthy coping tools, right? So trauma-informed psychotherapy, you know, it is important as a mental health practitioner to recognize that more than likely a person that you're talking to has experienced some form of trauma in their life. And so, you know, there needs to be a special sensitivity to that, right? Now, receiving support from other people who have also experienced racial trauma can also be helpful. Helpful. Uh, receiving support from family members and in your community, taking medication such as antidepressants could be something to help ease depression or temporarily help a person to sleep if they're having trouble. Making lifestyle changes such as beginning exercise routines and meditation. Now, I've been talking to you guys, meditation, it is not easy. It is not easy, but I continue to, you know, try it out. Um, sometimes I might leave it for a bit and come back to it because I still, I, I don't know, I find sometimes it's difficult to focus and to like really um, center myself. But I really feel like if I can get a hold of it, it will be a good practice for me. Something that I think can help sort of quiet my mind that tends to race a lot, you know, and, and just to kind of feel some kind of relaxation. But I do have my exercise routine, so that works as well. And um, sleeping is also very good. You need to be able to get a good amount of sleep um, so that you can rejuvenate, let your body rejuvenate itself, you know, um, so that it can be in its best form when you're ready to get up in the morning and conquer the day. Um, now, some people with a history of racial trauma may struggle to find clinicians of color, we just talked about it, or others who identify and who can treat their symptoms properly, okay? So again, if you're living in an area where you're, you know, mostly in a non, um, non, a color where there, excuse me, an area where there's mostly non-people of color around, then it can be difficult to maybe find someone. But again, look for cultural competency, cultural responsiveness, cultural humility, somebody who's an ally and who's willing to do the work to recognize the differences that color, you know, um, experience and to validate those experiences without making you, you know, look and feel like something is wrong with you as a result of, you know, on top of what you're already dealing with, that is, right? You don't need that. You really don't. Now, the causes of racial trauma, again, they're everywhere and people can encounter them on the news, social media, at work, at school. And while typical traumas are usually one-time events, racial trauma can be a lifelong experience. A person may never feel that their trauma is cured and may have to adopt new strategies for managing trauma continuously, which is something that if you should, you know, seek out a mental health professional, that's something that you would need to work on. You'd want to work on that, right? How do I deal with this when it's happening all the time? Okay. 
Moreover, it can be challenging to find support an individual needs to manage their trauma. And it's common for people to deny that racism exists or to minimize the effects of racial trauma. I mean, you have a country right now that is so divided, people who don't want to talk about critical race theory, for instance, um, you know, they want to diminish or dismiss or minimize your experience, but your, your experiences are whatever they may be. And if you're having a difficulty, if somehow those experiences are impacting you in any kind of way, then you need to make it a personal choice to take care of yourself the best way that you know how, right? And the best way that works for you. So if you're looking for different coping skills, you might want to take part in activism against racial or find a supportive community that understands racial trauma. Definitely, 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 you'll want to employ self-care. There goes that word again. It's all over the place. You can't really get away from it as much as you might not want to believe in its importance. It really is because it includes things like helpful nutrition, exercise, taking time away from traumatic experiences. So if that means turning off the news or turning away from it, you know, maybe reading a, a, a book or listening to some music that's relaxing, you know, do that. You also want to avoid relationships uh, when possible with people who dismiss the seriousness of racial trauma. Identifying racial trauma triggers and avoiding them during times of intense stress. So identifying those triggers and not just with racial trauma, but really with anything that brings about stress in your life, you need to recognize it and find ways to cope so that, you know, it's not impacting your, your daily life, right? Nobody wants to walk around feeling stressed all the time. It's not healthy, both mentally and physically, spiritually and emotionally. It, it impacts you. So you've got to find ways to, you know, um, manage better through those times okay and if it if it if it comes to having to avoid something then then do that because you have to take care of you there's only one you right um so yeah if you have to go on a media diet you know i like to be informed i've told you guys before i do like to be informed i do like to know what's going on but i'm not going to sit here and watch every single news cycle because it can be quite depressing and i already live with that as it is so i don't need to add to it you know but um you know pull back sometimes i take breaks from social media i'll be off social media for like a month months i just won't even I won't even have the bandwidth to deal with social media, not even really even look at it. So all of these things, you got to figure them out for yourself, what works best for you. Okay. And then identifying racial microaggressions and perhaps role-playing as to how and when to respond. All right. Because a lot of times I think we all feel very uncomfortable, you know, uncomfortable with um, interacting with people that might bring about the stress and then in turn having to talk to them about it you know it can be very uncomfortable so perhaps learning how to address the situation because it's not like you're looking to burn down bridges and stuff like that you know what I'm saying? you're not looking to do that but at the end of the day it's about taking care of you all right so to like sort of wrap it up racial trauma it's a serious challenge it affects millions of people every day and it can erode our mental health it can make it difficult to concentrate at work or school. 
And it can chronically, if left untreated or unnoticed, it can disrupt our lives. So while individual action will not cure the systemic problem of racialized violence and trauma, the right support can make this ongoing trauma feel more manageable. Okay, here's to brighter days. Okay, Village, so for those of you who have school-aged children, this is something that should be of interest to you. We have seen different ways in which our lives have been impacted as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the things that's been noticed, lately that is, is that chronic absences in U.S. schools have doubled. Now, before the pandemic, about 8 million students nationwide were chronically absent. And it's now estimated that 16 million students are now considered chronically absent, right? The U.S. Department of Education defines chronic absences as students who miss at least 15 days of school in a year. And, you know, there could be things like trauma, family responsibilities, health, transportation problems, poverty, housing, and food insecurity that contribute to chronic absences, according to the DOE. So they're saying that we're having an attendance crisis in our country, right? And that comes from Heidi Chang, who's the founder and executive director of Attendance Works, an initiative aimed at addressing chronic absence. Now, Chang said schools need to make kids feel connected and engaged, offer tutoring and mentoring, expand summer learning, and do at-home visits when kids aren't showing up. You know, it's amazing because um, as I was like listening to this story the other day, I recognized once again that we may not always know the pressures that children are under these days, dealing with and facing, you know, situations that you may not have as a child, right? Or as an adult, it's so easy to dismiss, like, what is, what are you stressed about? You, you know, you're a kid. Um, what's wrong with you? Like, what could possibly be on your mind? Well, there's so many different things that can impact them. And now it's affecting their attendance. And again, as a village, it's important for us to be aware of this so that we can be on the lookout, right? Now, Heidi Chang says it starts with outreach, okay? Need to make sure that you're reaching out to students and to families, right? Because a lot of times, um, one of the ways that you can be supportive to our children is to be supportive to their parents, maybe struggling. Maybe it's a single parent home. We never know what the circumstances are until we step out of our comfort zones and you know, find out what's going on. Because if we're saying that children are our future, then we really need to te- excuse me, um, treat them that way, right? Now, Hartford Public Schools in Connecticut, they've tried implementing this by having student engagement specialists like Ashley Jackson, who visits the homes of students who are not showing up to class. And eighth grader Ashley Quadra is one of the students that Jackson has helped. During the pandemic, Quadra's family moved and she was no longer qualified for school transportation. All right. Now, Jackson taught her how to take the public 
bus, public transportation. And she actually rode the route with her, right? To acclimate her to it. That's really cool. All right. Now, Quadra returns the favor by reaching out to other students who are often absent by stressing the importance of education. A myriad of factors contribute to attendance challenges, particularly in economically stressed communities. Thus, a range of strategies, some personal, others institutional, and still others on the levels of public policy and persuasion are essential if we as a nation are to overcome the slow rolling crisis of school attendance. And it's actually a crisis, if you will, that predated COVID, okay? A lot of things were um, really exacerbated during COVID. There was a lot of light shown on different issues, but those issues such as food insecurity, um, housing instability, um, trauma, domestic violence, mental health, all of those things existed before COVID. It's just that because we were all at home, we then became more aware of how serious each of those issues are, okay? Now, Quadra stated, quote, you need education to get further in life because when you get older, you're probably going to want to have your career. And you can't make a career out of no education because that education is going to get you far in life and a little child shall lead them. This song is from American singer and icons, third album. Her studio album was released in 1986. The song is about a person who finds herself relief and fun in a lover. And it was her first number one single on the US Billboard Hot 100 which made her and her brother the first and so far the only siblings to both have number one singles on the Hot 100. And it also peaked at number 10 in the UK. Now Pitchfork included the song on their 200 best songs of the 1980s list at number 48. Here's Janet Jackson with When I Think of You.
This next song is a collaboration between this Canadian and American singer released as part of his album, Fraudian, which came out in 2017. And it's also included in her self-titled album, which also was released in 2017. It won Best Collaboration at the 2018 Soul Train Music Awards, while also being nominated for the Ashford and Simpson Songwriters Awards. The song won the Grammy Award for Best R&B Performance at the 61st Annual Grammy Awards. Here is Daniel Caesar along with her, which is an acronym for having everything revealed. Her birth name is Gabriella Wilson with their song, Best Part. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic. Sunrise and 
those brown eyes, yes You're the one that I desire When we wake up And then we make love It makes me feel so nice You're my water when I'm stuck in the desert You're the talent all I take when my head hurts You're the sunshine of my life I just wanna see how beautiful you are You know that I see it I know you're a star Where you go I'll follow No matter how far If life is a movie you're the best part Oh, you're the best part Oh, best part If you love me, won't you say something? If you love me, won't you, won't you? If you love me, won't you say something? If you love me, won't you, love me, won't you? If you love me, won't you say something? If you love me, won't you? If you love me, won't you say something? If you love me, won't you? Love me, won't you? If you love me, won't you say something? If you love me, won't you? If you love me, won't you say something? If you love me, won't you? Okay, beautiful people, I'd like to talk with you about the term passing. Have you ever heard of it? Passing. Now, if you know anything about history, then you may be aware of this practice. But for those of you who may not be, let's take a look at what it means so that we know what we're talking about. Passing occurs when members of a racial, ethnic, or religious group present themselves as belonging to another such group. Historically, people have passed for a variety of reasons, from gaining more social clout than the group into which they were born, to escaping oppression and even death. Passing and oppression go hand in hand, okay? It's important to understand that. People would have no need to pass if institutional racism and other forms of discrimination did not exist. So who exactly can pass? Right. And, and this is kind of a complicated question, Village, because it often depends on the specific moment. In order to pass, one must lack or be able to obscure characteristics or traits most often associated with particular racial or ethnic groups. So in some cases, passing is almost like a performance and people must consciously obscure the characteristic that they know will give them away. Now here in the United States, passing has a specific history with African-Americans and Black people as a whole. And there is also the legacy of the so-called one-drop rule. Born out of white supremacist desires to maintain the quote-unquote purity of whiteness, this rule stated any person with Black ancestry, no matter how far back, was Black, period. Wait, Blake, you're Black, forget it, okay? Now, as a result, people 
who may not have been read as Black, if you pass them on the streets, would still be identified as Black on official documents, okay? Now, why was it that Black people passed? Again, in the United States, African Americans and Black people as a whole have passed to escape the virulent oppression that led to their enslavement, segregation, and brutalization. Being able to pass for white sometimes meant the difference between a life in captivity and a life of freedom. In fact, the enslaved couple, William and Ellen Craft, they escaped from bondage in 1848 after Ellen passed as a young white planter and William as her servant. The Crafts documented their escape in the enslaved narrative, Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom, in which William describes his wife's appearance as follows, and I quote, Notwithstanding my wife being of African extraction on her mother's side, she is almost white. In fact, she is so nearly so that the tyrannical old lady to whom she first belonged became so annoyed at finding her frequently mistaken for a child of the family that she gave her away when she was 11 years of age to a daughter as a wedding present, unquote. Now, oftentimes, beautiful people, enslaved children led enough to pass for white were the products of sexual assault between enslavers and enslaved women. Ellen Croft may very well have been a relative of her enslaver. However, the one drop rule dictated that any individual with the slightest amount of African blood be deemed a black person. This law benefited enslavers by giving them more labor because deeming biracial people white would have increased the number of free men and women, but done little to give the nation economic boost that free labor did. Now, after the end of the system of enslavement, Black people continued to pass as they faced stringent laws that limited their ability to reach their potential in society. Passing for white allowed some Black people entry into the upper echelons of society. Passing also meant that Black people left their hometowns and family members behind to ensure that they could never come across anyone who knew their true racial origins. Can you imagine the stress of that, the fear, constantly looking over your shoulders, just always having to be on point? Mm, mm, mm. Now, I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but Passing also exists, village, in popular culture, okay? Passing, it's been the subject of memoirs and novels, essays, and films. Nella Larson's 1929 novel, Passing, is arguably the most famous work of fiction on the subject. In the novel, a fair-skinned Black woman, Irene Redfield, discovers that her racially ambiguous childhood friend, Claire Kendry, has crossed the color line leaving Chicago for New York and marrying a white bigot advance in life socially and economically. And Claire does the unthinkable by entering Black society once again, putting her new identity at risk. I believe um, the actress Tessa Thompson um, plays in this movie. It just recently came out, um, maybe sometime last year. So, and, and it could be on Netflix if I'm not mistaken. Now, and it's always been a movie, by the way, that I wanted to check out and I, and I intend to. 
Now, James Weldon Johnson's 1912 novel, novel, which was called Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, and this was actually a novel that was disguised as a memoir, okay? Hint, hint. It's also another well-known work of fiction about passing. The subject also emerges in Mark Twain's Puddinhead Wilson, released in 1894, and Kate Chopin's 1893 short story, Desiree's Baby, okay? Now, arguably, the most famous film about passing is Imitation of Life. Now, that film debuted in 1934, was remade in 1959, and it's based on the 1933 Fanny Hurst novel of the same name. Philip Roth's 2000 novel, Human Stain, also addresses passing. Now, a film adaptation of the book debuted in 2003. The novel has been linked to the real-life story of late New York Times book critic, critic Anatoly Broyard, who hid his Black ancestry for years. And although Roth denies any connection between the human stain and Broyard, his daughter, Bliss Broyard, wrote a memoir about her father's decision to pass for white. It's called One Drop, My Father's Hidden Life, A Story of Race and Family Secrets. And that was released in 2007. Now, Anatoly Broyard's life bears some resemblance to the Harlem Renaissance writer, Jean Toomer, who reportedly passed for white after penning the popular novel Cain in 1923. The artist Adrian Piper's essay, and for white, Passing for Black came out in 1992, and it's another real-life account of passing. In this case, Piper embraces her Blackness that describes what it's like for white people to inadvertently mistake her for white, and for some Black people to question her racial identity because she's fair-skinned. Though the term passing is commonly used as a reference to a long-ago era, it is important to note, Village, that in the multicultural polyethnic new millennial of color, okay, and now culture, it is as ambiguous as ever. Thus, one cannot ignore other populations for whom passing remains a viable option, right? So let's talk about that. We're talking about members of the LGBTQ plus community, members of Latinx populations, and people of Middle Eastern descent. In a post 9-11 world amid a culture of don't ask, don't tell, many populations other than members of the African diaspora are employing various elements of passing in order to navigate the rough waters of inequality. So while we may be aware of the term passing as it relates to race, which is seen as a practice of, different, of, of a different period in our history, did you realize that there were other forms of passing village? Because you know what? I never really thought about it, even though even though you've seen it, you know, um, you've witnessed it. Like, for instance, within the LGBT community, if somebody, you know, um, is um, born a girl and they want to pass for a boy, you know, like we have seen examples of this before, but we may not have thought about it in this context. And it's the reason why I'm, I'm talking about it because it is a pressure that has been placed on many, not just members of the African diaspora, but other 
um, members of our population experience it too for really the same reasons because it's it's common in u.s media and it's linked to the notion of the american dream and of upward class mobility english language novels would feature class passing all right some of those examples would be things like the talented mr ripley Anne of green gables i absolutely love those books and the horatio alger novels and films that feature class characters include Catch Me If You Can. You know, isn't that um, Leonardo DiCaprio, right? And Andy Hardy meets debutante. Now, class passing also figures into reality television programs such as Joe Millionaire, where contestants are often immersed, excuse me, immersed in displays of great material wealth, or they may have to conceal their class status. Motives for class passing might include achievement of class mobility. Individuals may class pass to achieve social mobility. For instance, working class students, they may class pass educational institutions to obtain academic credentials and the associated awards. Concealment of previous class status. Upwardly mobile individuals may class pass to conceal previous membership in what's considered the lower or working classes membership in the working class. It can be construed from multiple viewpoints. On the one hand, working class identification can be a source of positive identification, but on the other, working class identity can be a source of stigma. Working class individuals report fear of disclosure of their identity, particularly if poor performance at work or school or deviant behavior may be attributed to them. For instance, a study of working class students found that they linked the fear of performing poorly on standardized tests to a fear of being discovered as working class, okay? So it is, it's more prevalent than you may even realize. It also can, um, you know, be something that, if, you know, gender and sexual orientation, okay? Passing as a different sexual orientation, it's also been traditionally an action taken by, let's say for instance, Um, Someone who identifies as homosexual, okay, Um, who might pretend to be heterosexual to avoid social bigotry, the phrase in the closet, right? It's often used for someone who is keeping their sexual orientation, such as homosexuality or bisexuality, a secret, okay? Disability, this one blew my mind. I wasn't really, I wasn't really thinking about this one, but disability, Passing among persons with disability is a complex situation, more commonly addressed via the parallel terms of visible and invisible disability, right? So visible disabilities are those impairments which are readily apparent to a non-disabled person, instance, wheelchair use or facial disfigurement. Invisible disabilities are those which are not immediately apparent, for instance, hearing impairments or mental health or neurological disorder. Whether a particular disability is visible or invisible can vary on both individual and contextual basis. A wheelchair user, for instance, may only use the wheelchair under certain circumstances and move apparently normally under others. A prosthetic limb may or may not be apparent depending on the clothing a person wears. A particular disabled person may often have both visible and 
invisible disabilities. Now, whether a disabled person is invisibly or visibly disabled, or both even, can affect the provision of services and the likelihood and types of discriminatory behavior which is experienced. Visibly disabled people are more likely to suffer random harassment for appearance, while invisibly disabled people may experience harassment when attempting to access um, facilities, for instance, that are provided for people with disabilities. A disabled person with both visible and invisible disabilities may experience substantial difficulty in directing attention to the less apparent invisible disability, like for instance, mental health. There are those passing as a member of a different religion or as religious as at all, really. Okay, it's, it's common among minority religious communities, such as Jews living among Christians at certain times, or certain Muslim groups living in Sunni communities. So even this, you guys, even this, passing as less intelligent, okay, is also not an uncommon practice, especially in teenagers, because peer pressure insists that they not be a dork or a geek. These teens say that they just want to be normal. So, as you can see, Village, there are many instances where passing has been used to improve one's status in life. Of course, as always, I encourage you to do your own research on this topic. I can only imagine, though, again, the toll that it must take on a person. Think that in order to survive in this world, for any given reason, that they would have to identify or excuse me, deny, I should say, who they are in order to be successful or to gain acceptance in a world whose view, to be honest, of what's acceptable changes like every single day. I don't know. I guess all I can say is, let's be you, boo.
That was The Barge with All This Love. The song was released as the third and final single from their second studio album of the same name on the Gordy label. The single would help DeBarge rise to R&B stardom. Now, a cover version of the song was recorded by Patti LaBelle on her 1994 gold album, Gems. And much like their first hit, I like it, All This Love was immediately embraced by the R&B community while the group gained a pop fan base. In the US, the single reached number five on the Billboard R&B chart and number 17 on the Billboard Hot 100. And it also reached number one on the Adult Contemporary chart. Okay, beautiful people. It's time for this week's inspirational story. The name of the story is called The Fox and the Grapes. Here's the story. One afternoon, a fox was walking through the forest and spotted a bunch of grapes hanging from over a lofty branch. Hmm, just the thing to quench my thirst, he thought. Taking a few steps back, the fox jumped and just missed the hanging grapes. Again, the fox took a few paces back and tried to reach them, but still failed. Finally giving up, the fox turned up his nose and said, they're probably sour anyway, and proceeded to walk away. (laughs) Now, what's the moral of the story, people? Well, it's easy to despise what you can't have. And you know, I I was thinking about this village. Um, It just made me think about those times in life where you have people around you who will like criticize you for any number of things. You know, the way you dress, your family, uh, relationships, friendships, or, you know, perhaps the opportunities that come your way because of like, I don't know, the hard work you've just put in. But they'll make you feel like the problem lies with you and that there's something wrong with you, right? You'll be thinking, what's what's wrong? What's wrong with me? But the reality is that they just may be jealous of the things that you have going on in your life because they may not be happy with their own life, right? And it's always easier for people to strike out against you than to kind of just take a look in the mirror and deal with their own issues. You know what I'm saying? So if the fox could just, you know, dismiss the graves because he couldn't get them, he couldn't attain them, there are people out there who might be doing the same thing to you in your life. So I'm just saying, be mindful of that, right? Instead of beating yourself up, just take a moment to observe, you know, the individuals and what it is they're criticizing you about, because there may be some more that lies beneath the surface of what they're presenting to you. This American R&B singer and songwriter released this next song from her second studio album, Rapture, in 1986. It was her first big hit. She just has such a sultry voice, right? Well, don't take my word for it, Village. You decide. Here's Miss Anita Baker with Sweet Love.
broken heart I'm ending on no shield I saw you holding hands Standing close to someone else Now I sit all alone Wishing all my feeling was gone I gave my best to Nothing for me to do But I want a last cry One last cry Before I leave it all behind I gotta put you out of my mind This time Stop living life I guess I'm down To my last cry was One Last Cry. The song was performed by American contemporary R&B singer 
Brian McKnight, and it was issued as the fourth single from his eponymous debut album. It was his first solo hit on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, peaking at number 13 in 1993. Now, since its release, One Last Cry has been covered by several artists, including the Backstreet Boys, Justin Timberlake, just to name a few. And I actually had an opportunity to listen to some of the different versions of that song. And I have to say, of the versions that I heard, the Backstreet Boys actually had the closest um, rendition, if you will, to Brian McKnight. It was actually kind of cool, right? Now, the song was co-written and co-produced by Brandon Barnes, Melanie Barnes, and Brian McKnight himself. Mm, Multi-talented and fine. Yeah. Well, kings and queens, it looks like we have come to the end of another show. I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. Remember, it's always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life is involved. I want to thank you all so much again for tuning in this week, and I'm looking forward to being with you all again next week here in the Village, every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time is where you'll find me, right? So please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram at villagementality.ckm as in Mary, and on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. You can also catch all episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and there is also a link available on Instagram, again at villagementality.ckm as in Mary, and on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. And check it out on theawakenlounge.com backslash village hyphen mentality, okay? Now, just remember, God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's Brighter Days. She's so stalling, yeah Everybody's running scared We used to be so carefree We used to be so happy we used to have everything we need Be